About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with a sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to, to arrest Peter also. This was during the festival of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison and handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the, sh in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane. When suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jewish people that all the Jewish people were expecting. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. When he knocked at the outer gate, a maid named Rhonda came to answer. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind, but she insisted that it was so. They said, it is his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. He motioned to them with his hand to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he added, Tell this to James and to the believers. Then he left and went to another place. When morning came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they came to him in a body and after winning over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for a reconciliation because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the platform, and delivered a public address to them. The people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a mortal. And immediately, because he had not given the glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. Then, after completing their mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem and brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Kate. Man, the Bible can be weird, can it? Some weird stuff happens. My name is Lane. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really looking forward to unpacking this next chapter of the church in our series, Our Origin Story, uh, journeying through the book of Acts. The heart behind this series is to look back on the beginnings of what we now call the church and ask the questions, what does this church have to teach us about how we become the church today? Because I really believe that amidst all of the problems that have plagued the church in the West with the abuse and um, the mishaps that have gone on, I really still do believe that if the church can become all it was called to be, that it is still the best hope for the world. Even through all of the failings that the church has seen, God has continued to still do good in and through us despite our failings. So that's the heart of this series. Now today, we're going to be talking about this thing called trust. Trust is pretty important, right? God is doing this thing where he's telling a big story of reconciliation. Throughout the scriptures, throughout our lives, he is doing a good thing. He is writing a story with a good ending. But sometimes it's difficult to see this requires faith from us. It requires trust from us. We simply have to trust that he is up to something good. Now, I tried to think of a funny illustration all week to put right here in this part of the sermon, and I couldn't. So sorry. Um, <laughs> any of your complaints, you can uh, give to Kate at redhills.church for the lack of laughs this morning. So anyway, we'll just get right into it. We see the church facing one of these moments where they have to trust in this passage that Pastor Kate just read. James has been killed. And this is James. This is a big deal. He's one of the 12. He's one of the three. When you hear Peter, James, and John, you hear him in the same breath. This is someone who's really close to, close to Jesus. He's a hero of the faith, and he's been effectively assassinated by Herod. He's been assassinated by the Romans. And they have to be wondering, how does this fit into the promises of God? How does this make sense in what God is doing? But we notice that later, Peter is miraculously delivered from prison, and then this historical figure named Paul, at the time Saul, is commissioned to go on one of his biggest missionary journeys. What was seen as a devastating blow and a setback to the spreading of God's kingdom has proved ineffective. Despite this great tragedy, despite this great loss, the will of God will not be stopped on the earth. But like the church back then, for us, we don't always know in the moment what God is up to. We don't understand how or why he's up to it. And this can cause in us uncertainty. It can cause anxiety and restlessness. We don't always know why God doesn't do what we would do if we were God. When devastating things happen especially, it's difficult for, for us to understand this truth that he is indeed working all things together for the good of those who love him. It's hard to understand that. So we get crippled by our anxiety. We get paralyzed by our worry. And then we get discouraged by our lack of control. So these cycles of unsatisfying answers to impossible questions, they keep us from being present to our lives right here, right now. They keep us from actually showing up to what God has put right in front of us. This week, Amber Abrams shared with me the story of a man named Padre Pio. I had never heard of him before, but this man was an Italian friar 
and a priest who lived through what a lot of people thought was the end of the world. Lots of moments like this. Things like the Spanish flu, World War I, World War II. He lost many of his family and loved ones to the Spanish flu. He saw humanity invent new and effective and more devious ways of ending human lives. He lived through these things. Well, one day in 1947, so this is just after World War II, there was this tragic accident that claimed the lives of over 40 children, most of them refugees from the war trying to find new homes. Devastating. They were like 100 meters off from the shore of finding this place where they could find families, and the ship was sunk. 40 of them died. Why? Why would something like this happen? And this journalist was interviewing Padre Pio about the incident, and this is an excerpt from what he said. He said, imagine a mother embroidering. Her son is seated before her on a small stool watching her work, but he sees everything backwards. He only sees the ugly knots and the befuddled threads. So he says, mother, what are you doing? Why is your work so unclear? Then his mother lowers the frame and shows her son the other side of her work, the beautiful side. Each color is in place, and the totality of threads is neatly and harmoniously composed. He said, down here, we see only the reverse of the embroidery. We are like the sun sitting on the low stool. Friends, here's the good news. Heaven is coming. And there is no power on hell or on earth that can stop it from coming. So whatever threads of pain or pleasure we find ourselves holding at any, any given time, we can trust that God is weaving it together into the tapestry of his perfect future. He wastes none of it. It all gets repurposed into beauty and glory, each thread perfectly in place. So today we're going to survey this passage, which has a lot of twists and turns, and we're going to uncover the cultural significance of what was happening at the time and how the church deals with this particular uncertainty and anxiety. And then we're going to see what lessons that church holds for us today as we deal with our symptoms of insecurity and anxiety. What does God invite us into and what does he not invite us into? And then we're going to ask what it looks like to be those who walk in God's perfect peace, those who walk in trust, even amidst anxious and uncertain times. How do we become the kind of people who trust the one weaving the tapestry of our lives? Let's pray. It's so sweet to trust you, Jesus. And we ask that as we learn from your scriptures, as we dwell in your presence, that we'd be drawn closer to you. That we would learn what it is to trust you more. For in this trusting there is grace and there is peace. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's take a look at what's going on in this passage. We open with this new chapter of church history. Herod, who is the one governing Jerusalem on behalf of Caesar, he's got himself a high-pressure job, right? He's trying to keep the peace. Now, keeping the peace is not the same, same as peacemaking. He's not trying to make peace. He's not trying to create pathways of reconciliation and renewal and, and peace where there is injustice. No, Herod is simply trying to maintain order. He's trying not to stir the pot. He wants to keep the Jews quiet, which will keep Caesar happy. It's a hard job. So we know that there is rising tension between the religious majority 
and these messianic cultists who are following the teachings of this blasphemous Jesus. There's so much tension, in fact, that someone has just recently been stoned by a religious mob for these controversial beliefs, Stephen. So Herod, Herod's trying something new. He wants to squash this, so he starts experimenting with violence to try to end the tension. Luke mentions to us that this is the week of unleavened bread, which is, of course, the week leading up to Passover, which is when who else was crucified and unjustly arrested? Jesus himself, right? So the Hebrews are worried. The Christians are worried, excuse me. This Passover was a celebration of Hebrew liberation, right? Moses leading the people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. So every year around this time, the Romans were on high alert just in case any Jews got bright ideas that they could do something like their ancestors did. They wanted to squash those rebellions. So this is the first in the church so far in this chapter. So far, they've only had to really deal with the religious elite right? The religious elite get angry. They stoned one of our best. They killed Stephen. So we have to look out for their outrage. But now we also have to look out for the Romans. We're on their radar and they're taking violent action against us. They're facing heavy persecution and violence from both sides. Now, when we experience violence, when we experience wrongdoing, whether it be emotional or physical violence, the reaction from us is to want to retaliate with violence, to want to return wrongdoing with wrongdoing, right? This makes me think of this teaching in Mark 8, when Jesus said, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. It's a strange thing, but you have to remember that the kind of bread that was the staple for the Jews was what? Unleavened bread. It was bread without yeast. So to let yeast into the mixture was to make it impure. When you would bake it, you'd be able to tell what would get a rise out of it based on whether or not it had yeast. So when Jesus says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and beware the yeast of Herod, he's saying, do not become like the powers of this world and do not become like the powers of the religious elite. If you allow their thinking, if you allow their ways to enter into what I have given you, it will contaminate it. Do not do things the way that they do things. So when the church is met with violence, there is this test. Is the church going to return that violence with violence? Is the church going to meet the, their enemies, the religious elite and the Romans, dishing back what's been given to them? This is a test. Will they continue to follow in the way of Jesus, which is narrow, and if you find it, even if it means that they must lay down their own lives. So, Herod kills James. This is a hero of their movement, one of the twelve, one of the three. It's a crippling blow for the church, and Herod sees that this makes the Jews happy. So he says, okay, let's keep going. Let's get Peter. And this is Peter. This is the guy. This is the goat, right? This is like the Blazers losing Damian Lillard, right? This is not too soon, it's not going to be good. If we lose Peter, then we have no chance for the championship, right? It's not going to work. So the church, some of you aren't laughing. I went sports for you. Come on. I didn't go Star Trek today. All right. Throw me a bone, people. Okay. Just stick to the scriptures. All right. So the church is worried is what I'm trying to say. Peter's a big deal. And now the church is worried. What's our fate going to be? I can only imagine the lament in their hearts, right? Like, how, how does this fit into your plan, God? They killed James, and now Peter's on the chopping block. Is this, this is it? 
This is how you are leading your church. How does this fit into your plan? How does this threat of suffering factor into your promises? But you'll notice the church is learning. In their anxiety, what do they do? They go to prayer. They meet and they pray. And while they're praying, an angel busts Peter out of prison, and he doesn't even know what's happening. When he finally comes to his senses, he realizes what's, what's, been happened, what, what's happened is that the angel has delivered him miraculously out of prison. And this is the second time he's been miraculously delivered excuse me, out of prison. And now it's happening again. And I love this next part. He goes to the house where he knows a lot of Christians are gathering, the, the house of Mary, who's the mother of John Mark. Um, a lot of Marys in the Bible. This Mary's the mother of John Mark, who we think wrote the Gospel of Mark. Anyway, he knocks on the door. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Peter, I'm not wanting to draw attention to myself at this moment. Everyone knows I'm supposed to be in prison, and I'm not in prison, and I'm sneaking up to this house. And who answers the door? Rhonda. Oh, sorry, Rhoda. <laughs> Sweet Rhoda. She gets so excited to hear Peter's voice that she turns around and runs upstairs to tell everyone, guys, Peter's free. And at this whole point, Peter's left outside going, um, hello, let me in. I do not want to be seen by anyone. I have to imagine the people who are listening to this being read out loud are laughing out loud at this moment. Because a lot of them might have been here in this moment. Like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember when Rhoda left Peter at the door. And they're upstairs, and they're debating about whether or not Rhoda's right. <laughs> and he's at the front door. The proof is literally right there. It makes me laugh that sometimes we humans, we get so caught up in trying to be right that we're unwilling to actually seek the truth. But we're not ready for that sermon today. <laughs> so we see this chain reaction of momentum, right? After this happens, after Peter gets set free, he sends word to another James, not the one that just got killed, James, the brother of Jesus, who we believe wrote the letter of James, who ends up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then Paul and Barnabas get, laid their, their, get their hands, get, hands get laid on them, and they go to be commissioned to their first missionary journey. Christ's kingdom is not stopping for anyone, right? And so Herod, he can't, he can't deal. He goes to his beach house. He's like, I'm out. I can't deal with this. Can't handle it. He orders the guards killed, and he retreats to his beach house. And then there are these two communities that are under his leadership, they're under his oppression, and they go to him to grovel at his feet, to try to, to gain good standing with him again. And like a false god, he receives all of that worship. And it says that he's struck down and eaten by worms and dies. Seems like overkill. Struck down, eaten by worms, and dies. Now there's a dramatic effect here, right? It's kind of like Ananias and Sapphira who struck dead right in the moment. A lot of what biblical scholars think is that he actually had some kind of worm parasite that killed him, which is interesting. The church didn't have to lift a finger of justice against this evil dictator. They didn't have to do anything. What does that scripture say? Justice is mine, says the Lord. Okay, so what does all of this, this is a weird story. What does all of this mean for us today? I think we can observe from this story how vital the role of trust is for the Jesus follower, both for our anxiety for peace in our anxiety, and for how justice is dealt. Peace in our anxiety, and for justice. Let's look at how the church exercises trust, how it deals with these really wild circumstances of uncertainty. The people of the church, they would not have lasted very long if they were consumed with needing to know how it was all going to work out, right? They wouldn't have lasted very long. I think they needed to humble themselves and embrace just how powerless they were because these were marginalized people. They were. They were the minority. 
if Peter was going to be delivered from prison, it was going to have to be a miracle. If the church was going to endure persecution, it was going to have to be because the Spirit ordained it. Because this was going to be impossible. Overcoming might with might was not an option. They didn't have any power. But here's the thing. I think we in the West, we have a really difficult time with this. Because most of us in this room exist as citizens of the world's greatest superpower. One of the world's wealthiest nations. And we tend to have a lot of power, and we tend to like that power. Because that power convinces us that more things should be in our control. We feel entitled to control because we have more control than a lot of people. Think about it. We live in a dominant culture that is built on customization. Everything is marketed to us in a way that makes us feel like we have control, right? Only pay for what you need with Liberty Mutual. (laughs) Commercials pop up all the time on my YouTube feed. Why? (laughs) We buy a car. It's customizable to fit your lifestyle. That's what makes a Subaru a Subaru, right? We order a meal at a restaurant, and I can get that sucker gluten-free, dairy-free, locally sourced, and private school educated. I have control (laughs) over what I put in my body, right? We have social media now, which gives us our own platform to customize for our own rants about whatever, right? How many of you remember MySpace? Some of you Gen Zers, you'll never know the joy. You'll never know the joy of being able to pick a profile song. Be able to pick my own background. Shoot, even my friends were customizable with that top eight feature, right? Even with things like giving birth, they sit like, remember, remember Jana? They were like, hey, what's your birth plan? We love to have control over everything. And when things aren't in our control, we're pretty quick to panic. That's why it's helpful to remember that our faith, listen to this, our faith was built on people who were in the margins. It was built on people who lacked worldly power. It was built on people who control rarely an option. The hope of Jesus is not to give us more control, but rather to give us more trust. That's why I love the lyrics of these old African-American spirituals. These are songs that were birds from Christians who were slaves in America. These were Christians who understood the nature of being powerless who were well-practiced in the art of trusting in God's promises even when their circumstances seem to paint a different picture, right? There's one called Deep River. Part of it goes like this. Deep River, my home is over Jordan. Deep River, Lord, I want to cross over into that campground. Oh, don't you want to go to that gospel feast, that promised land where all is peace? Imagine singing that together with a group of people who knew the reality that they may never see earthly freedom. This is also why I think that Jesus teaches us that riches make it difficult for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not to get into heaven, but to participate in his kingdom. The more worldly power I have, the more trust I have in that power to supply my needs. But the call of the cruciform life, the call of the Jesus follower, is for complete willing dependence on Jesus for everything. Those of us with power, we don't, rely, we don't like to rely on anyone for anything. So perhaps there's a reason why the early church, they shed their personal wealth in order to go into willing dependence on one another and dependence on God. Trust 
This was the substance of their faith. This is why Jesus looked to the poor and preached, blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. See, faith in God cannot be fully realized for for those of us who are unwilling to accept our lack of control, who are unwilling to accept the reverse side of that mess of threads, that it's actually being divinely woven into God's tapestry. Okay, I know I've done this twice already in like a month, but can we have another family meeting? Don't be worried. Yes, the world is changing. Yes, life is getting harder. But guess what? That has always been the case. Always. Listen, I can get this way too, but I hear people sometimes spinning out about how our world is falling apart, how our culture is unraveling, how it's worse than ever. Hot take. No, it's not. (laughs) Sin has always been as evil and as horrible as it is. Always. It's just finding new and unique places to thrive in. Human brokenness and sin is not getting worse. It's just finding the path of least resistance. It's like whack-a-mole, right? We create human solutions to horrible problems over here, but then sin escapes and shows itself over here. Over here, humanity makes slavery illegal in every nation. Whack! Celebrate! Illegal slave trade becomes the most profitable underground crimes in the world. Over here, we invent penicillin, make huge strides for medical technology, and provide healing for human beings. Whack! Congratulations! But over here, we invent weapons that can take out entire populations, killing more people than the Black Plague with a push of a button. Over here, we stop the First Reich. And we swear this will never happen again. Genocide like this will never happen on humanity's watch. 50 years later, 800,000 people are killed in the Rwandan genocide. The enemy is not reinventing evil with every generation. He's just rebranding. That's all that's happening. Here's another hot take. Some scholars may fight me on this, but most of them agree with me. That pretty much every Christian from the first century to today has believed that they are the ones living in the end times. Listen, potentially world-ending and terrifying things happen in every generation. All the time. We mentioned the Black Plague. It killed nearly a third of Europe's population. One in three. That feels pretty world-ending. World War I was called the war to end all wars. I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of wars since World War I. Spanish flu killed nearly 1 in 30 people globally. 1 in 30. World War II, we invented and then used weapons that could annihilate entire cities. That feels pretty world-ending. In 1988, this is not a joke, in 1988, someone wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Either I missed it or, (laughs) listen, the world's cultures are constantly in flux and culture is changing rapidly and I do not want to downplay what's happening around us, okay? I understand. I'm sober-minded about it and it's hard and it can be scary. And a lot of what we are dealing with is unique to our generation, but it's still the same. 
it's still human brokenness. It's still sin. It's still evil. But here is the reassuring truth to every single person in this room. No matter what form or brand evil takes, it changes nothing for us. Our marching orders have not changed. Our mandate is ancient. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love, love your neighbor as yourself. That's our mandate. It's ancient. It has not changed. And fear and anxiety about the future and about the past, it will paralyze us from showing up to what God has put right in front of us. And when we start arguing amongst ourselves about God, what he is or isn't doing, what prophecies are and aren't being fulfilled, what people are and aren't the enemy, Peter's downstairs at the door knocking. Can you, can you let me in? We debate about who or shouldn't, should or shouldn't be embraced by the church and by love and by God, and Christ is already seeking them out with or without our help. We can debate, we can research, we can go down internet rabbit holes all day long. Another hot take, you can do that, but if it is not helping you trust more in Jesus, it's not from God. If all of your research and all of your knowledge isn't helping you trust Jesus more, it's actually just distracting you from what God has right in front of you. It's keeping you debating upstairs while Peter's knocking at the front door. I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm yelling at you. I'm yelling at myself <laughs> because I can get like this. Remember, I was an intense kid. I'm the warrior. Let's find the enemy and kill him. That's how I think. Jesus is inviting us into something else. He's inviting us into a different kind of warfare, a different kind of trust where our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are not people that we can see and pinpoint with our physical eyes. It's the principalities and powers of darkness. It's evil itself. And the way we fight evil is not by fighting with evil. The way we fight evil is by trusting in Jesus, who has already conquered evil, who has already conquered death, and has victory over all of those things. That's how we win. That's how we win. The good news of Christ's kingdom is not stopping for anyone. So we don't need to fight fire with fire. Herod wasn't struck down by the Christians. Herod was taken out by what people call poetic justice. <laughs> These communities that were addressing him were people that were dependent on Herod for food. How ironic that what killed him probably had something to do with what he was eating. Sin will heap a punishment of its own. We do not need to be the ones punishing. We get to love indiscriminately. And guess what? Jesus gets to sort all that out later. I love that scene in The Chosen where he's like, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And Peter's like, well, what about, he's like, God's going to sort out the fish. We just get to share the good news. We see in the Proverbs the teachings of Jesus. We see in the writings of Paul. We see in the teachings of, of, of Jesus himself. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Paul later is known for ministering to those who were keeping him imprisoned. Martin Luther King Jr. did the same thing. Every time he'd get arrested for protesting the unjust laws in our nation, he'd be captured and imprisoned, and then he'd minister to the guards that were watching him. The more I sit with the scriptures, the more I am convinced that our New Testament mandate is to relinquish our want of being in control, our want to be the judge, our want to be the judge, jury, and executioner. The judge of the living and the dead, that, that job is taken by Christ. We can discern, we can challenge, but our role of punisher, that's it's not ours. We get to love our enemies, and in this way, we open up opportunities for the love of Jesus to be revealed in someone's life. 
That's what happened with Paul himself. Saul was the enemy number one of the church. And Ananias was faithful to be kind to this man who was persecuting the church. And what happened to him? He ended up writing most of the New Testament. So, to recap, we can trust in Jesus, both for peace in our anxiety and for justice in our world. Because the gospel, the kingdom, is not stopping for anyone. So what do we need in order to pick up confidence that God is working right here, right now? What would it look like for us to be those who follow Jesus and actually trust what he said? To live in a way that trusts that if I abide in him, if I'm grafted in the vine, if I remain close to him, that I can have the fullness of his joy. Because our ability to experience peace and joy is directly correlated to our willingness to trust in Jesus. I know it's simple, but it is not our instinct. We want to control things. We want to fix it ourselves. And I'm, I'm not saying we do nothing. I'm not saying we become stoics and give up our God-given emotions. That's not what I'm saying either. But maybe our first instinct when it comes to our anxiety, when it comes to our uncertainty, is to run to the Father. Notice that's what the church learns. We're anxious. We're freaking out. Hi, Nathan. Um, <laughs> It's happening. Why, why pretend like it's not, you know? Um, guys, give it up for Nathan. He's had to deal with so many technical issues this morning, and the dude, he's a rock star. And he's also probably cringing that I'm drawing attention to him. <laughs> Philippians 4. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything... And by petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. That's what we do with our anxiety. Let's talk about what anxiety does. Anxiety is paralysis or restlessness in the present due to our inability to change the past or control the future. It's what plagues us. It's paralysis or restlessness in the present due to our inability to change the past or to control the future. Here's what Christ's peace gives to us. Peace is a non-anxious groundedness in our present due to our ability to trust that God holds the future just as he has held the past. Groundedness. Presence. When's the last time you talked to somebody and you felt like they were 100% there with you? I apologize. It's not always where I'm at. Even between services or whatever, I'm thinking about things that need to go on, thinking about what lights are going to give out in the middle of the message. It's hard for me to be present sometimes. It's because I'm always wanting to fix things that are behind me that I can't fix anymore. It's always wanting to control things that are in front of me that I can't control. This is what paralyzes us. We cannot do what God has given to us if we are going to be distracted by our anxiety. How can we be grounded to what's right here, what's right now? Embrace that peace. There's a book that I'm going to put on a recommended reading list. It's called Right Here, Right Now by Dr. Amy Oden. Anyone who heard me preach for more than a year, you're already sick of hearing about it. But it's an incredible book. She writes this, Abundant life is the life God desires for all of us. A life that is real, not fake. A life that is true, not false. A life awake in the present moment, not stuck in the past or fixated on the future. A life that is whole, not fragmented. A life that is rooted, not scattered. A life that is connected to those we love, not disembodied in distraction. A life grounded by love, not anxiety or fear. 
That's it. People, right here, right now, right in front of us, what has God given for us? Imagine if we were so in step with the Spirit like Peter that we get delivered from our problems without even realizing that that's what's happened. Peter didn't have to be strategic. He didn't have to engineer his own deliverance. He just had to be in step with what was happening right in front of him, right then, right then and there. What would it look like to be so in step with the Spirit that we follow him into freedom before we even realize what's happened? Not paralyzed by anxiety, but empowered with peace. You can go ahead and take out your communion elements. This is exactly what the cross was, by the way. This is exactly what the crucifixion was. There was a ton of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty. They wanted Jesus to be something that he wasn't. They wanted him to do what was in their control. Start a military coup, overthrow the Romans, get us out, get us free. And Jesus was weaving together a tapestry more beautiful than they were ready to see. He wasn't just delivering them out of their current situation. He was delivering all of humanity out of sin and evil itself. This was the cross. When we look back on what Jesus has done, most of the time if we're paying attention, we're doing what Peter did. We look back and we say, now I know, surely, God has delivered me. So as we break the bread, as we eat it, remember that Christ's body was broken for us so that we could share in his life. Let's take the bread together. As we drink the cup, we drink in the new covenant in his blood shed for us for the purity and the cleansing of our sins and the new life in him. Let's drink together. Now, I'm going to lead you through a prayer exercise in Christian mindfulness. This is not pop psychology. This is not new. Christian mindfulness, biblical mindfulness is ancient. We're just really bad at it, so we don't like to talk about it. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to get really comfortable. Free yourself of distractions, your phones, your keys, whatever. Get into a comfortable posture where you won't be tempted to fidget. Close your eyes. Sometimes I like to hold my hands out in front of me. This helps me open the posture of my heart and in my mind. I find that my heart and mind follow the posture of my body. So if you want to hold your hands open in front of you, that can be helpful. Now I want you to just begin to breathe. To become conscious of your breathing. Acknowledge that each breath is a gift from God. The first miracle of all creation was the breath of God's presence given to you. Receive each breath as a grace, as a mercy. No matter what's happened yesterday, no matter what is coming tomorrow, you are here and you are embraced by the love and presence of God. Breathe in his presence. This is called the welcoming prayer. So we're going to welcome two things. We're going to welcome our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts. And then we're going to welcome the Holy Spirit. So let's start with that first one. I just want you to, as you breathe, to become conscious of your feelings. Are you feeling anxious today? Are you feeling discouraged? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling grateful? Are you feeling happy? Don't judge the feelings. Hold that temptation back. Just acknowledge how you feel. Welcome that feeling. 
We don't bow to our emotions, but we listen to them. They're trying to tell us something. Welcome those feelings. They're not your enemies, they're your friends. Begin also to take notice of your body. You are a fully integrated human being, body, mind, and soul. How do you feel physically? Are you wrestling with a migraine? Do you have tension in your neck or your shoulders? Are there wounds that are healing? Is there sickness? Is there vitality? Is there strength? Again, don't judge these things. Just accept them for what they are. Welcome the reality of your life. Keep breathing. Now we're going to welcome the presence of God. He is here. He is with you. Breathe in his presence. And welcome him. And invite him to minister to you. To serve you. What does he want to say about your feelings? What does he want to say about your thoughts? Oftentimes, we take our feelings at face value, our thoughts at face value, and they paint narratives in our minds that are actually not reality. What lies are you telling yourself? Lies of unworthiness? Lies of hopelessness? Lies of despair? Now, as you breathe in and breathe out, breathe out those falsehoods. Breathe out those lies and breathe in the presence of God. Breathe out the lie. No one wants me. And breathe in the truth. I am deeply desired by God. Breathe out the lie. Breathe in the truth. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak his truth to you. We're going to sit in three minutes of silence. Continue to breathe. 